Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Many people believe that it was the Kennedy-Nixon presidential race in 1960 that ushered in the importance of Hollywood style as a way to advertise a candidate. In her book, Showbiz Politics, Hollywood in American Political Life, Dr. Katherine Kramer Brownell illustrates that the use of movie professionals in campaigns has been around almost since the beginning of the motion picture industry. The book was published in 2014 by the University of North Carolina Press. In my talk with her, Katie reviews the beginning of the Hollywood political campaign and also traces its importance right up to the present day. I'm happy to introduce Dr. Katherine Kramer Brownell. Hi, Katie. Thanks for talking to me today. My pleasure. It seems like the main job of historians is to show how people are often wrong about historical events. Your book clearly shows that Hollywood was important to politics long before the 1960 Kennedy campaign, which most people consider to be the first major Hollywood campaign. But before we get to the book itself, let's talk about your background. What's your academic experience and how did it lead you to write this book? I uh, did my PhD at Boston University. I did my undergraduate work at the University of Michigan. And both places, I became really interested in the connection between politics and popular culture. And I worked with very prominent political historians, uh, Matthew Lasseter at the University of Michigan and Bruce Shulman at Boston University. And they have really challenged assumptions that people have had about political development. They've brought in new resources in their work. And and that really motivated me to ask different questions about political development uh, and to really bring in interdisciplinary uh, methodologies and frameworks and resources to uncover new stories about American political history. And and that's what brought me to this particular work. Uh, Political historians haven't really looked at the media, even though it's such a prominent part of modern politics. Uh, political historians haven't treated it seriously uh, in bringing in media sources um, from different archives that film historians frequently use, but political historians have generally overlooked. And once I started doing some of the research uh, during graduate school, I became really fascinated by this relationship between Hollywood and politics. Obviously, it's a topic that you've studied for a long time. Yes, I. This is a product of um, you know research I began in graduate school, and then really expanded after graduate school uh, during my first year at Purdue University. Are you able to use some of your information and some of your research in your current teaching? Absolutely. And that's one of the really exciting parts about this research is that I've been able to develop classes. Uh, I have a media, politics, and popular culture class uh, that I teach at Purdue University, and it attracts a broad range of students from different backgrounds, ones that who 
ones that tune in to Jon Stewart's Daily Show and they watch Saturday Night Live and think, what is the historical relationship? And entertainment becomes a great way to get people interested in political issues. And this is why presidents and political contenders have turned to entertainment. It becomes a tool for engagement that's really effective. And I've found that in the classroom as well. And so we've had some terrific discussions in the classroom about these historical relationships. And I can bring in some new material from the archives that challenges what they thought they knew about American history as well. Well, of course, it's also helpful that you're doing a topic where there's a great deal of uh, primary material out there that you can draw on. It's just unbelievable, you know, that early on we, uh, you know, film and radio and then later television and, and motion pictures, political events and activities are available, thankfully, to still review. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what's available frequently online are the, the video productions, the final product. Right. But what I found really fascinating with my research are all of the archives that have recently been opened that illuminate the discussion behind the scenes. And uh, this is what the book really focuses on, this behind-the-scenes relationship that developed between Hollywood entertainers and presidential administrations, and how and why presidents were encouraged by Hollywood activists to include their skills, their talents, and their expertise in political campaigns, uh, in, uh, in different policy addresses to engage voters. And it was a really contentious process. And that's what the, the behind-the-scenes archives, the memos, the correspondences, um, all, uh, all of these really fascinating reports about the political potential of entertainment, that's what the archives showed me that are not available online, and that's been really exciting to discover as well. Now, you begin the book with a description of the 1934 California gubernatorial campaign. Uh, who was Upton Sinclair, and why did his attempt to be elected governor bring the movie moguls to work for his opponent? Upton Sinclair was a well-known, internationally recognized writer, and he became very famous as a muckraker. Many journalists were trying to criticize, uh, through their literary skills, uh, political corruption at the beginning of the 20th century. And Upton Sinclair became very famous for his critique of the meatpacking industry in his book, The Jungle. Uh, then he continued to critique other major corporations and institutions of American life. And in 1934, he focused on the Democratic Party. Um, and he, he wanted to uh, enter politics uh, to critique the, the, what he saw as the corruption of machine-dominated politics. And that's a political system where you have uh, urban bosses, uh, people who have worked within um, in different cities. Uh, they've worked within the political party for a while. They bestowed patronage for support. And, uh, and he decided that he wanted to bring change to not just party politics, but also because of his known status as this critique of institutions, he thought that he could bring in, um, uh, by winning election, he could 
make California kind of a testing ground for socialism. Mm-hmm. And he he had this idea of collective farms, um, all of this state-sponsored initiatives that would help cure some of the problems of the Great Depression. And so he saw California as this testing ground that could then spread to other states across the country. And, um, and it's this socialist vision that he had that really worried uh, American movie makers who depended on low taxes, all the tax breaks that they had been given to move out to Southern California. Um, and his his tax plan would have critiqued or would have really uh, uh, brought a lot of taxes to those movie moguls and taken away perhaps even some of their property uh, for this vision of his collective vision. So that really worried them. Uh, and they knew that if he was elected, that it would be very detrimental to their business interests. So it united both Republicans and Democrats uh, behind uh, this effort to stand united um, against uh, Upton Sinclair and show this detrimental effort or the detrimental effects that they believe socialism and Upton Sinclair's plan for collectivism more broadly would bring. In fact, uh, from the story you were talking about, that some of the moguls were... You know, some of these studio heads were already starting to plan moving to Florida if this if he had gotten mm-hmm. elected. That was their plan was to, to, and they were using that as a way to try to get you know stay in um, to try to make sure that Sinclair did not get re- get elected. Yes, and I think that was more of a ploy. That was more of a publicity ploy. I don't think they would have really considered moving their studios to Florida. The temperature, the climate would not have been very conducive to uh, what they needed for production. However, that threat, that threat that they could possibly take this entire um, industry that had really grown so vastly over the decade, that threat was a lot. That was a very powerful threat uh, because Southern California Hollywood had become this internationally known uh, corporation and symbol and industry and idea throughout the world. And so threatening to move that to an entirely new state was an entire, uh, was absolutely something that gained a lot of value. Yeah, even today, I mean, People think about it today when you get sports teams who will threaten to leave if they don't Mm -hmm. get a new stadium or something. And it's clear that that's something that uh, businesses of any sort can usually hold over a uh, city or a state or or an area to try to get some control or better yet get better breaks for what they want. Absolutely. There's the, the, the business side of it, what they bring in in terms of jobs and, um, and tax revenue. Uh, but then there's also the, the publicity side of it. You know, it really helps. California has become known because of Hollywood. And the same thing uh, that is related with sports teams, that they bring great publicity um, that can gain them national or even international attention for that particular state or city. Right. So this example showed how the studios worked for candidates quite quickly. When did uh, actors and other creative artists begin to get involved in politics? Well, the 1934 election was really an important beginning for this uh, this mobilization of studio executives, but it also was for many actors and actresses because uh, the studio executives, someone like Louis B. Mayer or Jack Warner, they had very strict 
clauses about the public appearances of their stars. And so they could require them to turn out to some of these events to support Frank Merriman um, against Upton Sinclair. And this really angered more liberal and progressive celebrities who felt that they were taking and they were taken advantage of. And people like Philip Dunn declared, never again will we be taken advantage of and will we be used in this particular manner. So this 34 uh, election was important in motivating many celebrities to think about how they did want to become involved in politics. Uh, what they could contribute to uh, ideas and campaigns and candidates that they believed in. And and so it would be the 1938 election was the first time that many stars formed this Hollywood Democratic Committee. Um, and then two years later in the 1940 election, they became involved in FDR's campaign. And, uh, and by 42, they actually established the Hollywood Democratic Committee. Uh, that was a formal institution that gained national attention for their contributions in the 1944 election. And we'll talk about some of that a little bit later, especially how some of it came back to haunt some people's Absolutely. political mm-hmm. activities. It is interesting, though, and this is one of the things that I can imagine some of your students might not necessarily know, the whole concept of the studio system back then, where Mm -hmm. um, nowadays actors pretty much can control everything themselves. Back then, they were under the control usually of whatever studio they were signed with, and it did not give them a lot of freedom. It did not, and the morality clauses were very powerful. And it was important to studio executives to have that because one thing that's really essential to understanding about Hollywood during the 1920s and the 1930s and the controversy that emerged with the entertainment industry being involved in politics comes from the fact that Hollywood was seen as an immoral industry. It promoted consumption and uh, people feel feared that these were new role models that didn't have necessarily a a traditional education. They didn't have a family name or background or that type of status. And so many people feel or feared Hollywood as an industry. And then there's an important religious component in this as well, because the early indus- the early Hollywood industry was dominated and run by Jewish immigrants. And so there's an anti-Semitism that was wrapped within the growth of Hollywood and kind of fearing this status, the, the cultural appeal and the cultural power that Hollywood gained during the 20s and 30s worried those people who ran political parties and corporations and other uh, American institutions. And so the morality clause was really was a way in which studio executives could try to control the public image of their actors to make sure that there wasn't any bad press about um, what they were doing off the screen. And and that was really uh, an effective way for politically minded studio moguls like Louis B. Mayer to kind of force his stars to participate in the Republican Party. And uh, and he was able to do that for Hoover in 28. And then Jack Warner learned from what Mayer had done so effectively with Hoover and began his mobilization of stars for FDR in 1932. 
too. And he even was able to link his film premiere of 42nd Street that came out in January of 1933 with the inaugural. Uh, Sorry, it came out in uh, the the film came out in early 1933 and he was able to link it with the inaugural of FDR, who took the oath of office that year in March and uh, and have this entire film premiere, an entire huge train that traveled the country to promote the film and FDR's inauguration. And this idea of a new deal for entertainment was the slogan of that campaign. And it shows just how thoroughly studio executives could control the public behavior of their stars. Because even going back a little farther, you talk at least a little bit about even as far back as Coolidge and Hoover and how even then they they didn't think much of Hollywood, obviously, or even the whole motion picture industry, but it certainly was something that was on there, to use an anachronism, it was on their radar. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there's this constant tension that you see, especially in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, of this interest that politicians had in Hollywood because there were new technologies like radio and motion pictures that offered a way to communicate to American voters uh, outside of newspapers or outside of party material or literature that was distributed at the local level. And there's this opportunity that national politicians have to perhaps communicate to local voters directly. And, and they were really interested in that. However, uh, this required a dramatically different uh, way of thinking about the media. Uh, it required a dramatically different way of thinking about political parties. And many of them were really reluctant. Uh, they were interested, but they were also really reluctant. And they were very, very wary of criticisms of propaganda, uh, that they were using the media to manipulate voters. And the, the, the very very strong critique of propaganda that emerged in American society after World War One really made many politicians wary of, of turning too much to the media. It's funny how every time there's a new technology, particularly one related to communications, very quickly people try to figure out, okay, how can we use this to our benefit? Uh, we can go all the way back to the telegraph which is the first major electronic means of communication. But going forward, as you say, the idea when people talk about the Internet being the age of self-publishing and the age of being able to reach out to people directly, obviously these other technologies such as radio, movies, and television were considered the same way by politicians and others. Absolutely. There's there's this great opportunity, but what's really interesting is that it also requires a new skill set. And and that's really what Hollywood performers had. And throughout the book, I, I show how entertainers are trying to tell politicians we have the skill set that can help you maximize the use of these new technologies. And at first it was radio and motion pictures, but you really see this happen in the 1950s because television comes on the scene, grows very, very rapidly. And all of a sudden politicians are wondering, 
how do we adapt to this new technology? And so they turned to California um, that had really dramatically been shaped by the motion picture industry and media uh, appeals uh, over the previous 20 years. And they see uh, California is using the media in new ways. Political consultants have a more prominent role in California. Entertainers have a more prominent role in California. And so national politicians are trying to figure out what are these skills that they need. And they turn to California and Hollywood entertainers themselves had been actively telling presidents and political party leaders, we have these skills that you need to take advantage of. And so it's this really interesting way in which technology is adapted. And many people think that technology, especially something like television, inherently changed American politics and culture the way it did. But in fact, there were many different ways, ideas that people had about television, um, and it's because of the activism of many Hollywood entertainers uh, trying to show that they had a particular skill set. The way that they approached television was could be uh, very effective politically. The immediacy of television, I suspect, and the people always talk about, you know, when television first started, and of course, it, almost the minute the war ended. It started because the technology had already been there, but it had been put on hold because of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the idea of the personal aspect of television and the idea that you're, you're watching television in your home, and even though you got some of that with radio, television, because of the visual aspect, really changed um, a point of view to be a more personal medium than anything before. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, there's this really fascinating moment in 1952. It's one of my favorite stories about Dwight Eisenhower when he was announcing his candidacy for the presidency for the Republican nomination. And he went to Abilene, Kansas, uh, his hometown, to make this announcement. And he wanted to talk to people who had gathered for him and, and had come together in this local rally for him. And it started to rain and everyone told him that you need to you need to speak to the cameras and not the people that are gathered locally. That this is a national announcement and you need to present yourself as a political leader now to national television audiences. And so his some of his advisors told him, you know, perhaps you should go in this smaller barn where the cameras are set up and where they're protected because you need to recognize the national opportunity that you have right here. And Eisenhower said, no, I want to talk to those people who have gathered here today. And so he delivered this speech in the rain, in the wind. Uh, There's rain dripping down from his glasses. It was just horrific in terms of the visual image it presented to cameras that were able to capture it. And Robert Montgomery, an actor uh, who had been involved in the California Republican Party for over a decade, he saw this and he immediately called Eisenhower's campaign and said, you cannot allow these horrific images of, you know, this this famous general who's trying to show his political credentials. We need to present him in a more, uh, to have more of his leadership qualities appear visually, not just through what he's saying, but we need to present a better, a leader on television. And so he worked then with Eisenhower um, to craft this popular, uh, likable, 
political leader personality of uh, of uh, Dwight Eisenhower. And that really changed, you know, Eisenhower had a choice to make. He could pursue more of a traditional style of politics where he would focus on traveling the country, working with uh, the, the local and state Republican parties, trying to appeal to interest groups, or he could prioritize television and and that visual appearance to reach out to voters um, and especially independent voters or those people who had voted for uh, Franklin Roosevelt or Harry Truman. He needed to bring in some of those New Deal Democrats into his coalition. And he did so by using his personality and making that personal connection between Eisenhower, the candidate and the potential president and that individual voter through television. So obviously, even though Kennedy's known for his as, as a television president, really Eisenhower was the Absolutely. one who uh, sort of laid the groundwork. And I can't imagine, but I don't know whether you've seen it in your research. Did the Kennedy advisors use what some of the things that Eisenhower did well or not so well as a guideline for what they would continue to do going forward? They were very aware. Uh, John Kennedy, uh, his brother, Robert Kennedy, and his father, Joseph, were very aware of what innovations in terms of television and television strategy had happened over the previous decade. And they were very aware of what Hollywood had done politically as well. Joseph Kennedy owned a, a motion picture studio in the 1920s. And he remained very, uh, very close with developments in Hollywood uh, over the next three decades and received all the different trade magazines, would read them uh, regularly. He would he brought John Kennedy out to the studios frequently when he would travel out there. So they were very well aware of the potential that Hollywood held in terms of how to create a star. Uh, Joseph Kennedy had done it all his career. When he ran his studio, he knew how to create stars. And so that's what he did with uh, John Kennedy. He turned him into a star because he realized if he could become this this personality that people were demanding, that they were turning out in huge numbers to hear him speak, uh, if he could become this celebrity, then he would be able to win uh, the Democratic nomination and then potentially the presidency. Back up a little bit, though, and let's go back to World War II, because obviously Hollywood was very important in the, the campaigns mm -hmm. related to the war. How did uh, producers and actors get involved with World War II, and especially, uh, and how did Washington leaders involve them to try to get them involved in the, in the overall, uh, to put it any other way, the selling of World War II? Hollywood was very instrumental in selling World War II, and, and that's exactly what they were thinking of. They were aware that they were selling a particular version of what the United States was fighting for. And, you know, the war aims that uh, Franklin Roosevelt wanted to sell to the American people, he used Hollywood 
to do that. And the main vehicle of collaboration between uh, the Roosevelt administration and Hollywood was the Office of War Information. This was established by executive order, and so it was very much under the control of Franklin Roosevelt, and the Office of War Information really tried to unify the American people around the war and, again, really emphasize what are we fighting for? What is the purpose? They wanted to make the war bigger than just we got involved uh, to retaliate against the attacks on Pearl Harbor. This war was for a different international vision of the uh, of America, uh, that it would have this role, this, it would be an international leader, that the war was about these bigger ideals. And so the Office of War Information was created very purposefully to coordinate all of the media messaging, whether it's from Hollywood or radio or newspapers or pamphlets or uh, different posters that would be uh, uh, displayed in local towns. All of this was unified in terms of its messaging. And uh, the Office of War Information distributed manuals to each of these industry, and they had uh, a manual for the motion picture industry that screenwriters and producers and studio executives would read. And it outlined, it said, this war needs to be about the four freedoms. Uh, that's what we're fighting for. And so there's a, a New Deal liberalism that really becomes ingrained in a lot of the the theatrical and more importantly, even the non-theatrical or the, the patriotic shorts, uh, all of these productions that came out of Hollywood tried to convey this New Deal liberalism. Uh, and it, it stirred quite a lot of criticism from Republicans who, uh, who saw this, uh, who, who saw that these productions were not just selling the war, but they were selling New Deal ideology. And so it really stirred up a lot of criticism um, within the halls of Congress. Did some of these come out of the... Um the New Deal economic campaigns from the 30s and, and during the Depression, from some of the artistic uh, um, groups that were uh, formed out of the New Deal, some of the programs that were assisting artists, or was it pretty much Hollywood controlled? There, there were a variety. All of all of FDR's New Deal programs had a publicity pro or component to them. Uh, Roosevelt was very, uh, very media savvy, and he understood that his economic agendas needed to be sold. The idea of uh, of government providing jobs, government providing uh, support, uh, the idea that of creating that safety net that he wanted to develop with his New Deal, he understood that that idea had to be sold as well as the economic programs themselves. So all of his uh, different programs had some kind of publicity component to them. And Many Hollywood activists, you know, Jack Warner is a great example that he adored FDR and he would constantly write him letters, giving him movie passes in case he wanted to go see movies, uh, you know, constantly trying to create this personal relationship uh, with the president in a way that he hoped would give him social prestige by having that connection to a president, but also some economic advantages uh, for the, the, the motion picture industry as well. And so he volunteered 
uh, and produced on his own accord before the war, many, uh, many, many pictures that sold ideas of the New Deal. Uh, and you can see it in a lot of his theatrical productions as well, um, that there are um, there. There's a celebration of the forgotten man. Uh, the gold diggers of 1933 is a great example of this. That there's an incredibly compelling song at the end about the forgotten man and honoring the forgotten man. That we need to do something about it. And so he really linked a lot of his productions to some of the the same values of the New Deal as a way to really curry support for these programs that he believed in and for the president that he wanted to, uh, to, to create this, this personal relationship with. Of course, the other thing is FDR was the first, when we talk about who was the first television president, FDR was clearly the first radio president. Um, so he took advantage of that aspect as well, given that even though radio was around for, her, for Hoover, uh, it really wasn't until FDR's first, camp, uh, first president term that radio suddenly built so importantly and FDR didn't waste time taking advantage of that the fireside mm -hmm. chats and so on and so forth Yes, he realized that radio was this incredible opportunity. And like many of his successors, he realized that he could, again, communicate directly with the American people and not rely on reporters to convey his messages through stories or not rely um, on the, the printed press because he realized that many Republicans owned uh, owned the press and perhaps wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't feature editorial that were favorable to the New Deal. So he could circumvent them. He could go around the, 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 pre the mainstream press at that time, which was overwhelmingly newspapers. Uh, he'd go around them and appeal directly to the American people and present his programs the way he wanted to present them. And many of his successors would use television and, and entertainment more broadly to circumvent the, the mainstream press and appeal directly to the American people. And, and this, again, requires a skill set. It requires the, the media savviness that many in Hollywood had, and they were able to teach presidents those skills. And the one other person you mentioned, Louis B. Mayer, and his importance, but then, of course, there's somebody like Frank Capra, who was incredibly important in other ways, too, especially with World War II, with uh, the, the famous example of his, of his series called Why We Fight. In fact, mm -hmm. he used the exact phrase you used a few minutes ago, why we fight? That was the name of this series, and so those were, you know, they were basically what were they about a half hour a show or something, mm -hmm. an episode, and they were shown in the theaters as just as a way to keep the war as a positive, so to speak, to to the American people who were going to the movies to see, even during the war, to just for entertainment and escape. The, those those propaganda shorts, uh, whether sometimes they would be a five minute uh, short cartoon um, or they'd be a longer explanation of trying to bring to life the, the meaning of the war like Frank Capra so effectively did. And what's fascinating is that they weren't just shown in movie theaters, that they were also distributed um, in 16 millimeter uh, film, which was a lot more mobile. And uh, these films could be shown showed in libraries or town halls or anywhere that you could set up a screen. Um, and so it was, it was a, this constant effort to bring 
use film to bring the American people together in wherever they could get together. Uh, movie theaters became a really important place, but the films went beyond the movie theater. And the War Bond campaign was actually this really fascinating effort to bring the message about why we fight, why we need to uh, support the war, and and then by war bonds to every corner of uh, the, the American country. And film became a very powerful tool to, to dramatize to people what was at stake. And, uh, and Hollywood's contribution to the war effort was not just by producing theatrical films or these patriotic shorts, but also by really getting involved in the war bond campaign as well. Did your research t- um, get a ch- give you a chance to look and see how these methods were used on younger people, particularly with short subjects that could have been shown in movies or not in, could have been shown in schools the same way they might these other ones that meant for a wider population were shown in, uh, as you say, libraries and other places? Mm-hmm. The, the Bureau of Motion, Motion Pictures uh, Division of the Office of War Information had a lot of research uh, in terms of how to get younger people uh, involved in this or in the, the war campaign, get them to support these ideas. And so there are there is this research division that would try to get to get people's insights when they would leave the theaters. What did you think? What did you think? And overwhelmingly, this is one of the really fascinating parts of the research in the war bond campaign. Uh, overwhelmingly, People would come out of uh, of libraries or universities, and they would interview them and say, "What what attracted you? Uh, what are you what are you looking for in terms of these films?" Uh, and many people said they wanted entertainment. That when it was a more entertaining description of the war, uh, that they paid more attention. And and that's one of the really interesting uh, components of uh, the research division of the Bureau of Motion Picture Industry. Of course, some of the things that uh, Hollywood produced during this period are the kind of things we probably aren't as proud of these days. For example, in particular, it's, we, we've seen examples of how certain cartoons that were war-related unfortunately used racial overtones in, in much of what they did, as did uh, some of the, the movies as well, where the shorts in particular, where there was certainly a certain amount of of that attitude as far as what came through to try to uh, trivialize the the opponent you know the 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 people we were fighting against and unfortunately we got a little bit into racial and ethnic aspects as well yes and that is something that if you look at any of these these cultural products that hollywood produced that they they reflect and further ingrained some of these racial and ethnic stereotypes. And, and this is something that you can see from the 1930s into the 1940s. And many, many African-American celebrities were aware of this. They were aware that they could, they could participate in a film that perhaps uh, romanticized slavery. Uh, however, 
they were able to make money by doing that. And so th- there, there's a lot of conflicts, a lot of personal conflicts that African-American celebrities felt as they were participating um, in some of, you know, in, in a movie like uh, like Gone with the Wind, for example. Um, and, and so th- there's this tension about um, by many African-American performers throughout the, the 1930s, the 40s and into the 50s. Uh, they want to be in control of their own art, of their own performances, but until they're able to have more celebrity appeal, they don't get that authority. So there is this effort to work within the system um, and try to change the system. And eventually, African-American performers become really central to the civil rights movement and and figures like uh, like Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier, they realized that they needed to not just get involved in the movement, but they needed to change what was on the screen because uh, that image on the screen, uh, they wanted to overcome that history that Hollywood had of perpetuating racial stereotypes. Mm. So let's let's get a little bit more into the more controversial aspects because we know once the Cold War heated up in the 50s, uh, Hollywood became a target as well. Um, how did I- ideology become, I mean, we talked a little bit about some of the organizations that many of the actors and other creative people formed, the, the, the democratic um, organizations. Unfortunately, as we know, that ended up causing them problems then once the Cold War heated up and Congress decided to start doing a lot of investigating. Uh, obviously, there's a lot written already about that, but what did you see in your research that, that, that showed how this, you know, how Hollywood had to react to these problems? One of the most exciting things that I found in my research when I started to, to look at This controversy, the 1947, the House of Un-American Activities hearings investigation uh, into the motion picture industry looking for questions of communist subversion. This is a very well-known story from 1947. And I thought, what am I, what can I say that's different about it? Uh, Because it has been discussed so much in terms of the way that anti-communism really destroyed uh, these liberal inroads that had been made during the war. And one of the things I found is if you look at those many, many, many hundreds of pages of transcripts, you realize that it was about this fear that communism had infiltrated theatrical productions, uh, that perhaps the silver screen could make people lose faith in capitalism. This is something that conservatives uh, and anti-communists were, were very uh, were against. They thought that the on-screen productions had become this New Deal propaganda and that communists could then take advantage of the liberal sympathies of these activists and, and, and dupe them as they, you know, that term is in quotations because that's the, that's the fear that many uh, Republicans had about communism or communism. Or communist, sorry. And one thing that I found is that there's also this concern about celebrity activism. That if you look through those pages, that they're equally as concerned about celebrities who had mobilized on the campaign trail and had taken a more national a nationally visible place in the 1944 election. And there's this concern that celebrities 
don't have the the intellectual prowess to understand when or when they may or may not be manipulated, but yet they have this public power to to blind the American people with their glamour and with their glitz. Uh, this idea of bedazzle. That sounds very familiar. We hear it today. Absolutely. This is the criticism that began with Hollywood activists when they organized nationally for the 1944 election, and they were very effective. So that's the criticism. And that's the, the constant criticism criticism that is still at play today. Um, and any time Hollywood uh, celebrities have gotten involved in politics, there's this critique that that they're all about style and not at all about substance. But actually what I found in a lot of my research that many of these liberal and progressive activists in the 1944 election, they researched candidates, they researched their policies, uh, they, they were very adamant um, that they wanted to support very specific types of candidates. They were adamant about particular policies. Uh, they, they, were, they wanted uh, to outlaw the poll tax that discriminated uh, against African-American voters in the South. They wanted to advocate for policies that would provide full employment. So they did research and they tried to really influence the, the content of national debates as well. And, and there's this concern by critics that, again, this is, this is propaganda and that this is so effective and it's not what they want. So they need to really target that and limit that activity. And one of the, the fascinating things is that you see throughout those congressional hearings in 1947, this, this idea articulated by conservatives uh, that we need to eliminate entertainment from politics. We need to separate these two because when you bring in entertainment, there's this possibility for manipulation. But yet they stage those hearings as a spectacle to using the same strategies that they critiqued uh, the other side for using during the war. And that back and forth, the critique of one side uh, of one's opponents for using entertainment, but yet using entertainment to achieve your ends, that tension goes back and forth between liberals, conservatives, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. Each side is critiquing the other while they're also trying to one up the, the, the other side. Of course, now we can move a little bit more towards not the present yet. We're not there. But of course, the, the, the one example that uh, Richard Nixon, um, and he obviously learned from the 1960 campaign with Kennedy, and his 1968 campaign, it's just, it's unbelievable how much of a different candidate he became in 1968, much of that because of this whole show business um, aspect of what are some of the things that Nixon did to try to take advantage of showbiz to assist him? Richard Nixon's transformation is incredibly fascinating because he absolutely does uh, a complete reversal of his media strategy. Uh, in the 1960 election, he was aware of his image. And many people who think that he just didn't think about television, uh, and that's why he, uh, he performed poorly during the debates. Uh, that's why he, was, he lost the election. That's actually inaccurate. He did think about television. He was very aware um, of the potential to use TV in advertising. Uh, he was very concerned of it or with it. 
but he thought it was important to present himself as a statesman. He wanted to show that he was the respectable successor to Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, he had an advertising agency, but it was very small and it was kind of hidden in his campaign. Uh, he named it Campaign Associates and ha- most notably did not have their offices on Madison Avenue uh, because he didn't want his critics to say that he was, again, manipulating the American people uh, by his portrayal or by uh, by using advertising. So he, again, was trying to show that he was a statesman. And if you look at any of his uh, uh, commercials uh, from the 1960 election, he's sitting on a desk. He's very serious and he's trying to articulate that he knows about world issues and that he has a command of them. Uh, this does not... This does not help him win the election. It was a very close election. And there are many reasons that Kennedy uh, won over Richard Nixon. Uh, However, Nixon believed that the one reason that Kennedy won was because of television. And he believed that Kennedy had this celebrity presence. And he critiqued Kennedy for that on the campaign trail. He said, again, he's all about style. I'm about substance. Trying to uh, play on that that historical distinction that you can have one or the other. However, when, when Nixon was revamping his campaign and trying to think about how he would win the 1968 election, he firmly believed that he needed to do what Kennedy did, that he needed to have this celebrity appeal to, to emphasize his personality. And and so he looked at people who had been successful in doing this on the campaign trail. And one person he noted was Ronald Reagan, the former actor who had just won the, the California governorship in the 1964 election. And he realized that that Reagan and Kennedy, that they were onto something. And so he started researching Ronald Reagan. If you go to the Nixon library, there are boxes and boxes of his research on Reagan, trying to figure out what Reagan had, what Kennedy had. And he noted in there um, that there is something, there's a distinctive Southern California style that he needed to take advantage of. And, And that is very much emphasizing the personality, appealing to people's hearts, uh, appealing to their emotions um, and frequently using entertainment to do that. And so he made the media a priority uh, and he gathered a great media team that had on it, among other people, uh, Roger Ailes, the now president of Fox News, uh, to, to think about ways that he could have a performance that would connect with voters on the campaign trail. And so they constantly emphasize the importance of media, uh, the importance of image, and the importance of entertainment to connect his personality with voters. Yeah, it's interesting, there are two things. Number one, you mentioned that, that he tried to sell it to come bring himself off as a statesman. And the funny part about it is most of the time today when people talk about being unhappy with campaign commercials and such, Almost to a person, they'll always say, we, really, we wish we would know what the person really stood for, which, of course, Nixon was trying to, or at least that's what he felt he was doing in the 1960 mm-hmm. campaign, was trying to show what he really, truly believed and was st- standing for. And, of course, he criticized Kennedy the way uh, other people now criticize politicians for their Hollywood campaigns. 
Yes, he did. Adelaide Stevenson was the same way, the Democratic nominee for president in 1952 and 1956. He also critiqued Dwight Eisenhower, again, for relying too heavily on advertising and not really confronting uh, the importance of talking about issues. Uh, You know, uh, Richard Nixon, again, launched that critique at Kennedy. There's, There's this constant criticism among presidential contenders that one is just trying to present the, the the issues where the other is relying too much on image or style. And that's really this constant tension. Um, and I think it becomes more uh, more rhetoric than, than reality. Mm. Well, yeah, because in the end, they're all used in the same uh, exactly. mm. way. It's interesting. Exactly. You, the thing about Nixon is that not only did he do it, but it was very obvious to the extent that even contemporaneously in the ninth in the, after his first campaign that there were much written including books about the, the most obvious example the, the selling of the president in which they clearly uh, writers and journalists clearly saw what he did and and how he did it and yet it didn't it, it worked in many ways although once again it was a close election in 68 but still he won this time around and of mm-hmm. course what the things that he did ended up coming to the future, you know, going forward, it, it just became, once Nixon did it, it became the norm. And and that's really important, uh, that The Selling of the President is a, a book, an expose that was written by Joe McGinnis, a journalist, uh, about his experiences, kind of playing off of what Theodore White had done with the making of the president since 1960. Mm-hmm. And, and what Joe McGinnis shows in this book is, again, how central this image is, this con- and how how... The, the details of what goes behind making this image. And he says that this essentially won the election for Richard Nixon. That's the argument that he makes in this book. And when that comes out, it becomes a bestseller in 1969. And that's what people really believe was the difference. Uh, political consulting skyrockets in the next decade. And people, pol- political hopefuls are just flocking to any type of media advisor, um, hoping for their own Richard Nixon miracle. Because Nixon had made a comeback. He had gone from the loser of a presidential race in 1960, uh, the loser when he tried to run for uh, the California governor's office in uh, 1962. And all of a sudden, he could win the election in 1968. And the selling of the president book confirmed to many people that the difference between Nixon, the loser and Nixon, the winner hinged on media innovation and, and media consultants uh, and strategy or media strategy and using this entertainment style. This is what I call a showbiz politics, which is really the marriage of advertising, consulting, and entertainment. And and people believe that 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 can make you a contender, that that could win elections. And it's this belief that people have uh, that then propels new businesses and millions, now billions of dollars into those businesses. In, in, in your study, since, of course, the selling of the president was not a, you know, not a an academic study, it wasn't a scholarly study. Um, did McGinnis get it right? You know, whether media becomes important, it's, it's a great question and one that I've grappled with a lot. Does media make a difference? And and quite frankly, it's it's a difficult 
argument to make that Nixon won because of his superior media strategy, because it's hard to tell why people voted for him or not. There's also a lot going on in terms of the Vietnam War and civil rights protests and movements, riots in cities. There are so There's a lot going on. So it's hard to pinpoint that it's this media that makes that that's his this strategy that made the difference. Plus, However, the Democratic Party was also imploding. So absolutely. That, that absolutely. Yeah, the Democratic Party is severely divided. Uh, so there's a lot going on in terms of uh, the Vietnam War, racial politics, uh, the, the collapse of the New Deal coalition. But what I think is really fascinating is that whether or not it made a difference, this is what people believe makes a difference. And and it's, again, this shifting uh, value set, this shifting belief set about what where political power comes from. And the 1968 election was a turning point because this this book that came out about it and Nixon's own beliefs and his own campaign strategy, um, all of his advisors, they believed that it was media that made a difference, that television was used well, but now we have to do it better in four years. And, and this starts to really shape strategy um, and, and shape how people approach politics. So whether or not it does, those people who are making the decisions are crafting campaigns and running for office. They believe it does. And, and that, that shifting belief set is really what um, is, a, is a result of Nixon's transformation from the 1960 election to the 1968 election. And of course, nowadays, probably the most important Hollywood aspect or uh, public aspect of any candidate is the so-called announcement for presidents. You know, that you're running for president and those things are craft those announcements now are crafted just as carefully as almost every other aspect of the campaign and how you're going to announce it and how what, what kind of media you're going to use and and how are you going to craft the overall process and where is it going to be released and what kind of music are you using and things like that are all just as important Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's it's uh, now there's an effort to have the entire campaign have this theme and everything needs to reinforce this theme and, and, and that message. And again, the similarities between uh, a Hollywood production, a silver screen production that has a story, it has a narrative, it has a theme, it has a soundtrack, it has all these different supporting actors um, and and people experience that Hollywood movie, not just in the theater. But they they read about it. Uh, they hear people talk about it on different TV shows. The publicity that surrounds this Hollywood, uh, the silver screen production. There's a similarity between that and how a blockbuster is sold and how a presidential candidate launches his campaign and runs his campaign. Uh, there, there's a distinct similarity and it's the development between those two. It didn't just happen, uh, but this comes from these years of negotiations between Hollywood and presidential politics. Yeah, I can think of three campaigns in my, you know, in, in not too far back, we've got Jimmy Carter with his why not the best campaign. We've got, uh, Bill Clinton with Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow, and then, of Absolutely. course, we've got Barack Obama with Yes, We Can, that in mm-hmm. each case, there was, an, as you pointed out, a clear effort made to try to link everything together into an overall theme. Absolutely. And, you know, if you think about the, the origins of this, when you think about Eisenhower during the 1950s, the slogan, I like Ike, comes up. 
right? And that comes up because that was his effort to create this this constant this uh, this messaging about who he was as a personality. Um, again, I like Ike. The emphasis is on the person, uh, and so this shift in American politics. Where it's so much centered around the personality of the candidates and everything about that theme uh, reinforces uh, the message as well. Obviously, a book can only be a certain length and there's editing that goes on and even editing may have been done at the beginning when you were first starting the overall writing. But there are there aspects of this story that you didn't get a chance to tell in your book? There absolutely are. Uh, what I tried to focus on the book was, you know, again, these behind the scenes negotiations. So what that means are, uh, you know, a lot of the 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 politics of silver screen performances themselves. That's something that I don't dig into as much in this book, because, again, I'm focusing on the behind the scenes strategies um, and how Hollywood as a production process was brought into American politics. And so. The other part about uh, this story that I didn't really get into, and this is going to be the focus of my next book, is what happens now that we are in this age of showbiz politics. Uh, now that Nixon believes that media matters more than everything, how do we then govern in an age of showbiz politics? And those are some of the questions um, in terms of uh, you know changes in governance, changes in policies towards new technologies. Now that people believe that media matters more than anything else, how does it change how they approach new technologies like cable television or the internet? Um, what are the political biases uh, that they have that shapes these policies for technological development? That's something uh, that I was really interested in in this book. Uh, that I didn't have a chance to go into as well that I want to look at in the next book. It's funny, you just went ahead and answered my last question, but that's <laughs> okay. That was one thing I'd forgotten to mention, and I'll go back for a second, because your last chapter, you discussed Bill Clinton's election in 92. And while he consistently have always talked, called himself to be a successor to Kennedy, there's no question that as far as his campaign is concerned, he was a successor to Nixon. Um, I don't, you know, Nixon on, appeared on Laugh-In, uh, Clinton appeared on, you know, the Arsenio Hall show. Mm-hmm. And it just became, you know, they both are great examples of how both candidates figured out that in order to reach people, they were going to have to appear in a showbiz attitude, in a showbiz way. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the interesting things to think about today when you think about the connection between Hollywood and entertainment um, and, Amer- and in American politics. People will look at Clinton or or they'll look at President Obama and think that this is a liberal phenomenon. But in fact, over the course of the 20th century, the Republican parties and conservatives have been more effective at deploying these showbiz politics strategies. And I wrote an op-ed for Reuters last year uh, when it was on the anniversary of Nixon's resignation in August that really discussed This is a surprising showbiz legacy that Clinton and Obama embody is actually from Richard Nixon. And and this is something that people don't really think about um, in terms of the Republican inroads in these connections between Hollywood and politics. But there were really some dramatic ones that is embodied with Richard Nixon. 
And actually, in many ways, Clinton is the most interesting of the more recent presidents because we can point to a lot. You, you were talking about, okay, why did Nixon win in 68? Was it the media? And we say it's a contributing factor. But when, when you think about Clinton winning in 1992, he, he beat an incumbent president who, who was running for his second term, which is, you know, that was an unusual situation right then. And things were basically not in bad shape in the country. It's not like uh, President Obama or even Jimmy Carter when they were elected. The country was in some uproar, either economically or, or because of the war in the more recent times. And those things, and of course, uh, with Jimmy Carter, he was running against Gerald Ford, who had some bad, because of Richard Nixon's pardon, had some bad, uh, you know, people were against him for that. And so, but... Clinton's the interesting one because he won in an area where that was the total surprise. Everybody, you can often point to a lot of reasons with people like Carter and uh, Clinton or Clinton, uh, Obama, President Obama, but not the same way with Clinton. Well, and what uh, Bill Clinton was able to do is he was able to use entertainment and his celebrity status to critique. Uh, the establishment to say that he was an outsider, that he could bring uh, this hope and this change. And he was able to use this showbiz politics to become nationally known. He, he really wasn't a, a known contender for the presidency. People didn't know who was going to challenge uh, President Bush in, in 92, but he was able to, to create so much excitement and enthusiasm on the primary trail and go through that very long primary process and create this sense of a wave that this, this new person cannot be stopped no matter what happens. Uh, he was able to deploy this showbiz politics to do that, and it helped him at multiple points throughout his campaign. Of course, we see that now in the 2016 campaign, which has started here in 2015, where that's where it's going to be interesting, where you've got a uh, party that there is no clear uh, candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, there has to be a way that you have to put yourself above everyone else in these announcements, like I mentioned before, and then what you do next and how you sell yourself, to use the term, is going to continue to be important as far as uh, how candidates are picked. Absolutely. And, and that's the interesting thing is it is about selling uh, a personality. And the connection between Hollywood and politics is so much deeper than just who can you get to endorse your campaign that might be a well-known name. That could be helpful, but it also could could harm a potential candidate. The The deeper connection that my book traces is how can political contenders become celebrities themselves? How do they deploy that star-making machine from Hollywood in their own campaign? And throughout the 2016 presidential race, I think you'll see a dramatic turn towards entertainment forums, uh, The Daily Show, Saturday Night Live, um, you know, our new uh, BuzzFeed. We've seen uh, uh, Obama really effective at appealing to American voters through these alternative medias, through entertainment. Uh, it allows him to communicate directly what he wants to say, once again, to uh, American voters and using a forum that they're comfortable with. They're, they're more comfortable with entertainment with some of these more social media 
based uh, forum. So there's going to, I think that there'll be a, a dramatic shift in relying on entertainment to communicate messages and the personality of presidential contenders. So it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out. Well, I'm hoping that when your next book comes out, whenever that is, we can have another chat because frankly, I've really enjoyed this. It's a topic that is of interest to me. And the issue of media has always been something that has been a part of my interests. And I think your book really did a great job of tracing the steps, but also showing that uh, media is nothing if not, I mean, it's been around for a long time. Showbiz has has been part of politics and uh, will continue to be even more so. So I really appreciate you discussing your book with me. And I really, I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful pleasure to discuss it with you. And it's always fascinating uh, to to hear different perspectives of of people on you know the, this role of the media and to, to, to learn what they may be surprised about and what's a new new to the historical story as well. So thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Katie.